This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, our town hall with Washington State Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti. In 2020, he was the only Democratic candidate in the nation to win a statewide executive office against an incumbent. Join us for a frankly delightful discussion about a host of financial issues he's taking on here in the state, including shifting our investments to be more socially responsible and away from Wall Street. We also discuss the creation of a public bank for the state and what $7 billion in relief funds from the federal government will mean for Washington. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday. Tuesday, June 8th. Welcome, uh, everybody, and welcome, Treasurer Pellicciotti. I will echo Kat and first and foremost say thank you for being here and certainly congratulations on your election. We are so thrilled to have you in office. Well, well thank you, Stephanie. Hi, Kat. It's so good to see so many uh, friendly faces. I see Julie here and so many other folks, and it's just really great to uh, be with all of you again. Well, it's great to have you with us, and I'm going to have you start the way that you have started our last two appearances, and I hate to ask you for a job description each time you're on, but you're so darn good (laughs) at giving it. So just very briefly, what does a state treasurer do? Oh, it's a great question. It's actually one of the the first things whenever I give a speech I always start off with. So we we serve kind of three major kind of core functions. Um, So we manage the state's uh, debt. So when the state creates highways and kind of capital projects. Uh, we don't, uh, the state doesn't build that all at once. The legislature develops a plan to pay those off. Um, and so we have about $20 billion uh, in debt. Our office manages that. And we try to have the lowest interest rates that we can to save uh, taxpayers and the people of the state of Washington money. Um, the second thing we do is we handle kind of cash flow for the state. So we manage over $300 billion. Uh, in cash flow. So checks coming in and out from the state. Um, you can imagine that the state uh, pays a lot of bills and receives a lot of money coming in. And uh, we handle uh, a lot of the cash flow related to that over $300 billion a year. Uh, and then the, the third major thing we do is we uh, handle certain state investments. Um, and so those state investments are about $20 billion in state investments. That's kind of managing when the money's coming in and, and sitting in the state for a short period of time. And then as well as managing some local dollars uh, as well uh, that we do through that. Uh, and those are kind of the three main core functions of the office, but there are a lot of other things that, that to me are really exciting about the office. And I know we'll have a chance to go into more detail, but really um, kind of larger policy issues um, within the office that I think are really important. So the state treasurer serves on various boards and commissions. There are several different boards and commissions that handle um, a range of issues, uh, housing finance. Uh, you might be familiar with the GIT program, which is kind of the, the 529 program that you can invest in your kids' educational opportunities. I, I serve on, on that committee. I serve on the Economic Revenue Forecast Council. We actually have a meeting tomorrow, which handles kind of uh, budget outlooks and, and things along those lines. And then I also serve on the State Investment Board. Um, so I'm one of 10 members on the State Investment Board, which over uh, which manages uh, state, uh, state pension issues. Um, I'm one of only 10 members, unlike in other states, where the state treasurer might have total control over it. Here in Washington, I'm one of 10 members, but to me, it's a very important uh, part of the job, and I look forward to talking about some of the opportunities to to, uh, lead on issues through that work as well. Let's start right there then, because, you know, when we last spoke, uh, we talked about how the way that we invest our funds as a state is a reflection of our values. And this is our first audience question. Julian asks, what is your office doing to increase the state's socially positive investments and to decrease its socially negative ones? So I'll just ask you, what are some significant ways that you have shifted our state's investment portfolio away from maybe what it was under your Republican predecessor? 
Yeah. So as I was indicating, there are, there are kind of two major investment categories. There are those investments that I have direct control over as state treasurer. So those are the kind of $20 billion of investments uh, that I was mentioning earlier. Um, one of the things that, that I've done uh, since coming into office is making sure that all of the directly managed investments by the state treasurer, by, by me and my office, um, have an ESG lens through all of the work that's done. And that is included uh, for the first time, uh, making sure that there are no state, state funds that I have direct control over that are uh, being invested in, in coal, oil, or other fossil fuels. I'm sorry, can I just um, uh, jump in? Can you clarify what you mean when you say ESG? Oh, great. No, great question. So it's kind of environmental, social, and governance issues. So all the kind of good stuff that you want to be thoughtful about related to um, our investments, that we're kind of looking through a lens to make sure that we're thinking long-term related to investments and that we're doing investments that actually, um, you know, are, are the type of good investments that, that we want to make sure are, are best serving the interests of the people of the state of Washington. Um, and so the ESG lens, or looking at the environmental, social, and governance issues, is essentially a critique of investments, making sure that they're kind of smart investments. Um, and so that is something that I've made sure since coming in as treasurer, we're doing for all of those investments that I have direct uh, control over uh, to make sure that those investments are uh, best serving our long-term interests. And as a part of that ESG analysis, um, that has found that it would be inappropriate um, to be investing in any fossil fuels. So that means no coal, no oil, um, or other uh, gas uh, companies uh, specifically in our state uh, for our state funds. Now, I should point out, um, you know, as we were talking about kind of those two different groups of investments. There are those that I have direct control over, um, and then there are the, the pension dollars, which are managed by an independent state investment board that I'm one of the 10 voting members on that board. And so, um, and I'm happy to go into more detail, but really my the focus that I've had in the work that I've done on the state investment board is making sure uh, that we really do a lot more shareholder engagement. Uh, so the companies that we do own uh, stock in, uh, that we're doing everything we can to make sure that those companies are looking out for the long-term uh, with the inv the investments that, that they're doing, or I should say the operations that they're doing, yeah. because we're what's called an institutional investor. So an institutional investor means we, we own everything that we, we have to own as a part of the, the legal framework that we have as a part of our investments. But because we're not short-term profit motivated, our interest is making sure that those businesses are thinking long-term because we're going to be owning that same stock today, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that we can really engage with those corporate boards to make sure that they're watching out for the long-term interests of the company and not just short-term profits. Um, and so that's been a, a busy week for the state investment board. They were in, engaged just this past week in voting against uh, current um, membership, uh, the current corporate board membership of ExxonMobil, for example, and, and using and leveraging the votes of Washington state and other state treasurer offices to make sure to change the current corporate board makeup there um, and vote against the current corporate boards. 
And that's what we call that shareholder engagement to really start looking long-term in the way that we do investments. Which is a very exciting thing, ultimately, because, you know, as, as a, a maximal shareholder, you do get some say in the matter. And that is something that I want to get back to the, the, the corporate board uh, issue in a second. But I want to follow up on something that you just said. Uh, and we had an audience question about this. You mentioned that we have divested from fossil fuels, um, but you started to talk about pensions and said that there's less control there. We had a question. Uh, somebody asked specifically, are you able to divest our pensions from fossil fuels? So the quick answer to that is the State Investment Board does not divest in anything. That's been a board policy for many years. And so, like I indicated, I'm one of 10 voting members on that board. They, the State Investment Board has what's called an index fund, which essentially means that it uh, invests in uh, those that are publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it has had a longtime policy of not divesting. It passed a current legislative mandate, it's a legal fiduciary obligation to be maximizing returns at a prudent level of risk. Um, I've viewed this as an opportunity to really focus on the prudent level of risk aspect of our of our legal mandate that comes from the legislature. And um, you know, one of the first things that I've done is I've joined the audit committee of the state investment board. And the audit committee is has traditionally, you were mentioning difference between me and my predecessor. The reason I'm on the audit committee is because uh, there was a vacancy on the audit committee when I when I took over, um, and the audit committee has traditionally uh, looked just at you know kind of the, the the numbers of the organization, making sure there are clean audits in the operations. But the audit committee can, has a much more significant role, uh, in my view, and in, in the the legal assessment that I've had related to reviewing the the work of the board, and that's making sure that we're minimizing the risks to our investments. And that to me really creates an opportunity to make sure we're thinking long-term and that we're starting to create policies on the board. And obviously this will take some time, but that we're being thoughtful on these legal financial issues and looking at these long-term issues related to all aspects of our investments. So it's not just a particular company here or there because the the state investment board invests uh, over $140 billion, right? So it, it is a wide investment portfolio. Um, but but what to me is very important is we start looking at what are issues that affect our long-term investment interests. So we were talking about climate earlier. To me, climate isn't just involving certain companies. It, inv- it involves all companies and making sure that whatever business is being operated, that they're doing the steps they need to be doing to start changing their uh, behavior so that they're able to operate uh, years from now and that they're thinking long-term. And so a lot of the work that I really want to focus on is making sure that the audit committee is effectively uh, mitigating those long-term risks on all companies that exist. And I really think that's where we're gonna see a really significant change. That's been the the long-term uh, view that I, I think that we should be having with the State Investment Board. What keeps going through my head is elections have consequences. Uh, and this is such good news. I, I love to hear these sorts of developments, uh, you know, when it comes to our, our state's investments. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about a few of your quite formidable achievements during your relatively short time in office. And, and we'll start here. You recently refinanced the state's debt to get back over $100 million in future debt costs. Can you talk uh, specifically about what you did here. Yeah, sure. Well, look, credit goes to a good team in the office. Uh, there's no question about that. We have a great, great team in the office and really skilled uh, folks. But I'm really pleased we timed it really well. And for those who aren't familiar with what we're talking about with that, it's it's technically called a refunding, uh, but it's essentially a refinancing. It's kind of like when you refinance your house. When interest rates are low, you refinance your house. If you time it right, it saves you in costs down the road. 
Um, well, that's kind of what we're doing. Interest rates are very low, um, but we really timed it and really did a focus on where did Wall Street companies, when they bought uh, essentially bond, Washington state bonds, when did they get kind of really good deals from their perspective? And let's refinance those deals. Let's pay them, pay them back right away and refinance that because what does that mean? It means if we do a real thoughtful analysis on that, that $100 million was set to go to Wall Street. And instead, it's going to be kept by the people of the state of Washington. And that makes a really big difference because when we're talking about certain programs and projects and, and things that uh, in the past, look, you mentioned before I've served in the legislature for four years, it seemed like we were always being told there, there wasn't enough money or there, you know, oh, that's a great $2 million program that would make a big difference in people's lives, but sorry that we don't have the funds. Well, when you're talking $100 million, that's 50 of those programs. When we hear about major changes um, in social services that are being provided, you know, the, a lot of these programs that are 50, $60 million, um, that $100 million now makes that possible. Um, and so it's the type of thing that when we're being thoughtful and we're saying, hey, this money should be going to the people's state of Washington, not to Wall Street, um, that we can really make a make a big difference in helping folks out. I was really hoping that you would connect the dots in a very deliberate way there, um, and, and you have. Uh, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk about a couple of other things here, too, that I find particularly exciting. I will actually just back up for a second and say, it is my understanding that the $100 million uh, refinancing was the highest percentage of savings from a refinancing by the Treasurer's Office in the last 35 years. Is that correct? Since records have been kept, yeah, we started keeping records 35 years ago, and it's the best we've ever done by a percentage basis. And no, it, it's really exciting. I mean, it's it's it, it, at least it's exciting for me. <laughs> and, we should give you a bonus. Because, is what I'm getting yeah, at. You, you right. already deserve yeah, a bonus. No, look, yeah, I mean, because I know, having been a legislator, how critical this is. When we can free up this type, these type of funds, yeah. and, and I mean this, this is a hundred million dollars that would otherwise have gone to Wall Street, Wall Street profits, and instead is now here in the state of Washington to allow for us to do projects in the years ahead, that really makes a big difference. And, it, you know, but it takes a, a focus on making sure that we're really trying to, to make those changes and, and make sure that we're always focused on, on doing that. Like I said, we have a really great team uh, in, in our office that, that is really excited to be doing this work. And, and I'm always encouraging them to do more, more things like this. You also recently worked with state agencies and municipalities to finance emergency equipment and building upgrades at low interest rates. Talk about the savings here. So, you know, you know, I always talk about the fact that our job is to provide as much value to the people of our state, regardless of the economic conditions we're facing. So when interest rates are low, we need to be doing everything we can to make sure that we're allowing people to borrow money at really low interest rates. When interest rates are high, we need to be investing uh, public funds to be maximizing the returns on different uh, treasury bonds and things like that when interest rates are high. Well, right now, interest rates are low. So we've really been focused in the office, and again, thanks to the good work of our team in our office, at uh, finding creative ways to provide low interest rate loans to local governments. Because right now, um, you know, obviously with all the economic challenges we've been facing, we've been making sure that we are able to pool uh, various states as a part of a larger public offering of a bond. And for those who aren't familiar on the call, a bond is essentially kind of a debt, right? We say um, we issue a bond and we say we will pay you back a certain amount of years later with uh, at a that same amount, but with interest. And we give payments between now and that, and that time. Well, Again, we've really done a great job and we've you know, been able to maintain our AAA bond rating, which is the highest rating that the state 
uh, can have that allows for us because we're a good investment for people to uh, buy our debt at a very low interest rate. And so a lot of small communities don't have that same opportunity. They don't have those same low interest rates or have the same credit ratings. And so what we've been able to do is through a particular local program called the uh, Certificate of Participation Program, um, we've been able to use the Certificate of Participation Program to pool different local governments into this pot and issue uh, debt at very low interest rates. And so with those low interest rates, it's the difference between certain communities, let's say in East Pierce County, um, being able to buy a fire truck or not, or in Stevenson, Skamania County, being able to get certain emergency equipment or in Oak Harbor just a couple months ago, being able to get an ambulance that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get. And so these, these are uh, uh, real exciting things that allow for essential services at the local level um, that otherwise might not uh, be able to be financed uh, and certainly not at such low and favorable cost to the taxpayers. And the more we can help local governments out, the more we can really allow communities to thrive. I'm just going to highlight one more thing that you did, which is to approve the private financing of the state convention center expansion. That's going to save taxpayers about $330 million. So look, by my math, you've saved the state about half a billion dollars with these three projects. How are you going to keep this pace up is, is what we want to know over the course of your tenure? <laughs> well, 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 again, we have a truly great, great staff in, in, in the treasurer's office. I couldn't be more thrilled with their, their commitment and focus to the work that they're they're doing, but but it makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, the difference between three hundred and thirty billion, uh, three hundred thirty million dollar government bailout for convention center or having private financing is the difference between that three hundred thirty million dollars being available for other efforts. And be, by doing the private financing, not only was it over a hundred million dollars saved to the state of Washington, over a hundred million dollars saved from King County, and over a hundred million dollars from the city of Seattle. Um, but we also saved over a thousand jobs by keeping that convention center on track. And we really uh, invested in the long term from an economic development standpoint of really having confidence in the growth, uh, regrowth of Seattle as we get through the economic challenges of really allowing that convention center to, to expand. So it's kind of a win, win, win. Um, but it's something that pays dividends uh, for the people of our state uh, going forward. And again, you know, so much of this focus is what's in the best interest of working families and retirees in our state. If we keep that focus, and, you know, as we've talked about before, you know, as one of the only state elected officials who's always rejected all corporate campaign donations, it's allowed for me to focus always on that interest and not about what some of those corporate special interests might be as a part of all of these things. Uh, I want to talk about federal money uh, because you've been doing a lot of work around the $7 billion in federal stimulus money that is coming to Washington from the American Rescue Plan. And uh, I'm, I, I will just ask on behalf of everybody and myself included, what is involved in the mechanics of taking receipt of a, a chunk of change that big? And, and what is your role in it? Stefan, it's a really big wheelbarrow that shows up with cash. It's like seven billion dollars from, yeah, uh, no. from Monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, no, you got it. it look, it, it is a. Um, to me, it was a very critical step uh, in getting us out of the economic uh, uh, recession that we're, we're currently facing, and it's the reason why I joined sixteen other state treasurers around the country in calling on Congress to pass uh, President Biden's uh, uh, recovery plan, the ARP. The, stim the stimulus money that you just described, um, that would result and has resulted now in $7 billion coming to the state of Washington. Um, and, you know, to me, it was very critical. I mean, we have to remember that passed by only one vote, if you remember, mm -hmm. in the Senate. And so teaming up with other state treasurers, I think, was very critical. 
in getting some of those um, members of the Senate who were, you know, kind of going both ways on it to, to get behind that and make sure that it passed. And, and it's really made a big difference for our state. So $7 billion alone to the state of Washington, about half of, well, I should say within the state of Washington, about half to the state of Washington and another half to local governments. And uh, as you were talking about it, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's not easy. You would think it's easy just to receive $7 billion, but it's actually very complicated. You need to make sure you have certain collateral to back up the funds when they show up. You need to make sure that you're able to uh, invest those funds so that you're, you're getting a return uh, on that money once it shows up. And uh, that's not necessarily easy to do. And it's one of the things I'm really proud of uh, our office and our investment team in our office because we were the first state in the country to uh, successfully receive the federal funds, uh, the first state in the country, um, which uh, you know came as a surprise because uh, the, as the first state, no one knew who was going to get it first. And we were, were really quick on the trigger. We filled in all of the paperwork through the good work of the Office of Financial Management. We were able to, to receive the funds late on a Friday and yet still get it invested in, in federal, uh, uh, federal bonds to make sure we were earning interest on that money. And that interest goes back to the state of Washington. And again, it makes a difference between, because a few percentage points or a few, what we call, um, uh, you know, essentially hundreds of percentage points on $7 billion, or in that case, a few billion dollars, that, that's real money. That's, that's real money. <laughs> yeah. If you time it right, again, it's the type of thing where you're talking millions of extra dollars that's coming into the state that otherwise wouldn't have if we weren't uh, doing our job so well. And so I'm really proud of our team and everything we were able to do and being prepared for that. Uh, and making sure that, that that money was able to then uh, be in the state and then obviously go to where it needs to go uh, throughout the state. Well, you know, I, I'm curious to get your take on how you feel this changes our financial picture, because as we know, uh, not six, seven, eight months ago, the state's financial picture looked very, very grim during the pandemic. I think uh, at, at, at a certain point, we were projected to run about a $6.6 billion shortfall. So how do you think this federal money changes our long-term financial picture? And in what ways? Well, it certainly helps the short term. There's no question about that. And I think got us back on track. I think what we've seen is um, we were able to not have the the um, austerity budget that, that I think was a concern for, for many that otherwise we may have seen this year. And, you know, for those who've, who were part of the austerity budget a decade ago during the last recession, a lot of legislators talked about, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Representative uh, Maxwell's on this call. I know she, you know, obviously helped guide us through a lot of these issues. Um, was a challenge where it took a lot of years to, to, to rebound uh, from some of those cuts that took place. And so what's really exciting to me, and one of the reasons I was you know, such a strong advocate nationally for the ARP monies, is it allows for us to, to kind of keep, keep things steady, keep, th keep things on track. It fills that gap, allows local governments to continue to provide essential services, and then allows for uh, effective budgeting uh, you know, two years from now. And what we've seen is that money's come in, it's gone directly into people's pockets, opposed to what has been the Republican approach in years past, this trickle-down notion that never really got to people. Well, guess what? You put money in people's pockets, um, they spend it on their essential services. And what we've seen is a really uh, an amazing bouncing back of the economy um, that, you know, hopefully will allow us to kind of keep, keep on track and keep on trucking. And I think uh, you know, good work by by our congressional delegation in, in passing the ARP, and then also obviously good work by the president in, in making sure that, that that's all come together. And, and again, I'm really happy that of the role that we played in the Treasurer's office, not only to advocate for it, but then also receive the, the funds efficiently. So you're feeling, I, I'm sensing, pretty pretty sanguine about the progress of our economic recovery here in the state right now. Look, look you know, there was a 
maybe it was about a month or two ago, uh, uh, a, a study and an analysis that identified that in the last few months that Washington has had the most effective economic recovery of any state in the country. Wow. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that comes from, you know, smart economic policies. I'm a big believer in that. Um, you know, things like paid leave, I think, served us well over the last year. It's one of the reasons that I joined uh, 16 other state treasurers in calling on uh, Congress to include uh, family paid leave as a part of a lot of the recovery efforts being uh, proposed by, by the Biden administration and ultimately being considered by Congress. I think all of these things fit together. And if we're being really smart about our economic policies, that leads to strong economic recoveries. And I'm really pleased to, to see that because of our smart economic policies here in Washington, that that, that we're on track a lot, lot better than most other states. I want to actually. This is a very natural transition. I want to. I want to talk about this year's legislative session, and I'll, I'll just ask you as as a, a sort of a, a primer. Did you have a legislative agenda as a treasurer going into this session? So you know, one of the things that when you become uh, you get sworn in, the legislature is already meeting. <laughs> uh, you know, they they were sworn in two days earlier. Uh, so so you're kind of off and running. The good news is, uh, having been a, a state uh, representative. Uh, for two terms. I had a pretty good idea how that worked. Um, and so we were able to engage in a lot of legislation, um, not uh, where we were just, you know, it was a big, big policy, actually good cultural shift within our office, where I think for a long time, um, our office, you know, waited for the legislative session to happen. And then we, the office would kind of complain about what the legislatures, legislators did. Um, when I came in, I said, well, you know, we can actually engage in the process while it's moving through the legislative session. Um, and I'm really pleased with um, the, the engagement we had on a number of bills to really, I think, make them better and also allow for them to, to move forward in an effective way. One of the bills that I did uh, introduce as a means to really promote is issues of unclaimed property, which I've, I love talking about. So go to claimyourcash.org, claimyourcash.org. And one in seven Washingtonians have unclaimed property. I'm one of them. They I, I, I did. Yay, it. good. I got some money good. back. Yeah. Good. I love it. No, look, one in seven Washingtonians, $1.6 billion of unclaimed property yeah. that belongs to the people of the state of Washington. Uh, claimyourcash.org. And, uh, you know, it's something that I'm really working hard to promote. It's currently managed by the State Department of Revenue, which is not part of our office, uh, but it's something that that is a priority for me to promote. And that was part of some of the legislation that I introduced was in an effort to promote that. And I'm going to continue to really make sure uh, we get that money back in people's pockets because that extra $25, $75 makes a big difference. Yeah. People don't, people rarely know they have money in there that, that they often do from, you know, utility pay, utility deposits that, that they missed and, and things along those lines. There are a few other things that I want to ask you about, and and I, I would imagine that you'll you'll let me know if you actually had a hand in in some of in shaping some of these bills. And the first thing that I want to talk about is capital gains, uh, because as we know, after years of trying, the legislature finally managed to pass the capital gains tax. I'll just start off by asking generally your thoughts on this. Sure. Well, I think there were two two issues that um, that that my uh, that my predecessor and I uh, very strongly you know talked about and disagreed on. Well, one was issues of capital gains and one was the issue of issues on, on public banking. Um, you know, the first part I want to talk about capital gains is, um, you know, I've always thought that capital gains was the, the most, the smartest way to deal with the regressive nature of our, our tax system in, an, in a way that was, was viable for the legislature to address. So uh, we, the legislature passed capital gains this year. Um, I was obviously having uh, conversations with legislative leaders while that was moving through the process, and unlike uh, the the previous administration, 
that that was speaking out against capital gains. Obviously, I, I viewed it as something that was um, the right time to be introducing it because introducing and passing it, because as you likely know, it's going to take a couple of years of kind of a legal review of it to uh, make sure that it is constitutional. I believe it to be constitutional. Um, I think the court will eventually find it to be constitutional, but but it's only smart for the legislature to not necessarily bank on that money coming in, um, knowing that there's going to be a legal review of it. Well, if that's going to take a while, um, we need to make sure we're doing it when we have these federal funds coming in so we can continue to maintain this two-year budget, um, allow for the capital gains to be expected in two years from now, and hopefully everything stays on track. Uh, if, if for some reason, and it would be a surprise to me, it, it is uh, found to be unconstitutional, well, then it's, it doesn't kind of create a huge hole in the budget. And so I always thought this was the time to do it. That was part of what I was trying to communicate during this legislative session for those reasons. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, a lot of the, the advocates, uh, the folks who were introducing that legislation, I had a good opportunity to talk to during this legislative session to make sure that uh, that things were staying on track with that. The lawsuit that you mentioned, I, I believe there are two. Uh, the most recent one claims that the capital gains law is unconstitutional because they claim it's actually an income tax. So obviously, we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, I'll just ask you generally, because there were a number of other progressive taxation bills that uh, advanced but uh, didn't make it through, wealth tax, estate tax, others. Uh, any uh, thoughts, hopes for next year's session on progressive taxation? Well, I think Representative Frame has been a real leader on on many of these issues. She she has her uh, work group that um, has been focused on these issues. I think most people realize, and certainly I did, uh, was that capital gains was was the, the place to to start any analysis and dealing with the regressive nature of our system. I, I you know continue to think there there are a number of things that that could be could be looked at, um, but you know I'll leave that to Representative Frame and, and really the legislature at this point, who who is doing more of a thoughtful analysis of what what makes sense and, and when in terms of dealing with the regressive nature of our, our tax system. But it's it, it's certainly something that needs to continue to be addressed. I mean, we have a regressive tax system in Washington. It's it's not it's not good, um, and you know it, we need to be doing everything we can to to lower the 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 taxes on working families and retirees who pay a disproportionate share time and time again um, uh, it related to uh, the, the taxes that they're paying in our state. 100% agreed. Um, I know that you are a staunch advocate for a state bank or public bank. I, I believe you you like to refer to it as public bank. We had a lot of questions about this uh, from listeners in advance. First, if you could just lay out, what is a public bank and how do you see its advantages? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that, look, I, I think there are a range of issues around public banking that are helpful to the to the people of the state. I always want to, you know, clarify that, you know, that what I don't support is any use of state pension funds um, to uh, create a public bank, nor an unconstitutional use of state funds uh, to, to create uh, public banking. Um, and it's really those constitutional issues uh, that really have kind of complicated things, I think, for a number of years. I think this was the first year um, that two things happened. One was that our office uh, actually assisted legislators in uh, finding a constitutional path related to uh, various legislation they were putting forward. And for the first time, there was a public bank proposal that actually got out of committee uh, for the first time that I'm aware of in, in decades. Um, and, uh, you know, I was obviously we were working uh, closely with the legislators who were introducing the, the public banking uh, legislation. There was a constitutional path. It not only then was able to pass the committee, it actually passed the Senate, came to the House, passed the House committee, got to the House floor. Uh, again, this is what happens when you actually have, have an office that's willing to, to work in a collaborative way 
um, you know, within certain uh, parameters. I mean, again, within certain guardrails to make sure it's constitutional and legal, but but in a way that that uh, is assisting legislators instead of attempting to thwart uh, legislators. Um, you know, to, to you know, as it relates to the this, the particular proposal related to public banking, um, it was you know uh, essentially a public bank that uh, through a kind of I mean, a municipal cooperative that would have pooled municipal funds uh, together to allow for uh, loans to be loaned out to uh, municipalities. Um, one of the things I was mentioning at the beginning of our talk is that we are at historically low interest rates, historically low, and so the. It, the challenge that I think existed a decade ago in terms of high interest rates keeping municipalities from having access to capital, it, it's not the same situation. We just had $7 billion come in uh, to the state. We, we have historically low interest rates. Um, and so the real question now and going forward is uh, the demand from the, municip the municipalities to be identifying that, that uh, this is something that they want and need right now. And I think that uh, the, the lack of uh, uh, municipalities coming forward and saying we need this right now. It's part of the reason it wasn't prioritized uh, by the legislature, but I don't want to speak for the legislature. You'll have to ask, <laughs> ask them. Uh, but, but what I can say is for the first time, um, we saw uh, a public uh, banking or municipal cooperative proposal uh, actually get out of committee and move significantly through because, again, this is what happens when you have government that actually is cooperative and not attempting to uh, thwart uh, certain proposals. And a lot of that, uh, I believe, was due to the great work of Senator Bob Hasegawa, uh, who I spoke with on the show about uh, the public bank. And, you know, I'm just wondering uh, your opinion about, you know, you, you talk about some of the things that will need to happen for an accession in order for it to become law. Um, I, I, a lot of this seems to be messaging. Um, you said the municipalities haven't really sounded off about the need for a, you know, a state or public bank. How do we as activists maybe start to spread this message? Because as I said, it was, uh, I think we probably got six or seven questions about this very subject. How would you like to hear us speaking about that in a way that you think would advance this in the legislature? Well, I, I've always thought that the, the the only way that this that a public bank would be viable in in the current proposal is if the larger uh, counties, those who actually have the resources to to kind of create the pool of funds, uh, think that it's a good idea and want to participate in it. And so, really, you're t you're talking King, Snohomish, Pierce, some of the larger larger counties that have the resources in order to, to pool those funds. It's not going to be a a random mos mosquito district in eastern Washington. Uh, they might benefit from the the, the loaning of the cash, but they're not going to be able to put forward the, the capital necessary to kind of create this type of type of entity. Um, and so the, the question is really from from the, those county leaders, if this is something they want. I, I, again, I don't want to speak for the legislature or any individual legislators um, in terms of why legislation didn't move. But but I do think that um, if if county governments uh, and other uh, jurisdictions think that they want to be a part of this, um, you know, coming forward and, and identifying that during the legislative process would, would amplify the need. I, I do want to reiterate, we are at historically low uh, interest rates. And so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't come as, as big of a surprise to me right now that those local governments aren't, aren't saying we really need the access to this capital in the same way. And so, uh, you know, I've always viewed any issues of public banking as being a kind of longer term uh, analysis and project. Um, and and I, I think that you know that that that's that's no different now uh, as a part of that analysis. But but uh, you know obviously talking to your 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 local government leaders 
in terms of uh, any interest that, that, that they have in, in, in coming forward is, is obviously the next step. And as you say, timing is key because uh, rates are low right now. So maybe at a different time in the future, it might be an easier sell. I also want to talk about the, the work that you're doing around cannabis banking. Um, first and foremost, I will note that you recently reported on annual cannabis revenue, and it's pretty substantial. Can you just tell us what the numbers are there? Uh, it, it, it's, it's a lot and it, it increases every year. I mean, I think that we were looking at in terms of revenue for the state, it was like a half billion dollars. Now it's probably going to be closer to over a billion dollars on a biennium bu- uh, budget. Um, we're, we're seeing a, a, a huge amount of obviously revenue that comes from that, but the cannabis banking that is particularly um, that needs to be addressed is allowing uh, cannabis businesses to use banks um, that includes credit cards that includes making sure that they're not operating in cash um, it is not good policy to have a business that is dealing with that type of those amount of transactions operating in cash and not in credit cards it is a problem both from a safety standpoint um, and making sure that those locations are secure and, and in my view nationally it's an issue to make sure that that um, that there's an, a proper accounting of the money that's taking place. And uh, what I've done is I've called on Congress um, specifically to uh, pass what's called the Safe Banking Act. And what the Safe Banking Act is, is essentially it was legislation that was actually originally introduced by a Representative Denny Hack uh, some years ago um, and has now passed the House, but is currently in the Senate that would allow for states like us that have legal cannabis to allow those uh, businesses to transact with, with, with banking institutions, which means take credit cards and do the things that any other business operates in. And to me, it's a safety issue, it's a good accounting issue, and it's just smart policy. And um, it's something that states like Washington need to be leading on uh, because lots of other states that don't have legal cannabis obviously are not. And we need to make sure we, we get that passed this year, especially with the change in leadership in the Senate. I believe I believe we were one of the very first, if not the first state That's to right. legalize uh, recreational marijuana use. And so uh, in this and so many other ways, the rest of the nation uh, looks toward us uh, for these sorts of issues. Um, I will just mention before we get into audience questions, um, I know that you've made a number of endorsements. The 2021 election season is about to become uh, front and center for us here on the town hall series uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'll just ask you very briefly, uh, I know that you've made some endorsements. Uh, are, are there any that you uh, that you care to talk about? Well, you know, well, one I will say it is nice to to not not be on the ballot myself for the first time in a while. So it's it's nice to actually be helping out uh, other campaigns as they're running in their municipal races. Um, you know, look, I, I I just this weekend, I think on Sunday, I uh, joined uh, Senator Wynn as a part of his uh, kickoff. I spoke at at his kickoff. I've known uh, Joe Wynn for for a number of years, and was happy to. Uh, to endorse him, um, you know, I've uh, endorsed uh, uh, Hamdi Mohammed uh, for the Seattle Port, uh, as well as uh, uh, Toshiko Hasegawa uh, for the, for the Port of Seattle as well. Um, you know, in those cases, I, I'm really thrilled just to have candidates uh, representing South King County. You mentioned that's where I've represented in the House. Uh, I feel like we have needed representation uh, on the Port since so much of the Port's uh, activities at SeaTac affects South King County. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate um, the the work that they're looking forward to to move forward as well. You know, obviously, um, we have a number of races and great candidates all around 
the state. I've endorsed other campaigns, and you know, I, I don't want to forget about anyone right now. I feel bad that if I am, but but uh, in, in light of some of the recent th- th- events I've spoken at, those are some that come to mind. Recently. Well, they're great candidates, and uh, and I, I was I, I'm particularly excited about uh, a number of them that you just mentioned. Um, so let's jump into audience questions. So we had a question from Cindy who asks: uh, the state uh, uh, needs uh, infrastructure from the public works assistance account, but keeps having its funds diverted away to other programs. What can you as treasurer do about this? Well, I'll say what I've done so far, which is actually I've reached out uh, to the chairs of uh, both the respective House and Senate committees and uh, successfully advocated, I think it was $120 million more uh, in the Public Works Trust Fund, uh, or I should say Public Works Assistance account this year and have specifically called on them to actually stop rating that. Um, you know, you were, we were talking about public banking earlier. Um, obviously, legislature, uh, while moving certain legislation forward, uh, you know, did not pass that legislation this year. Well, that's not stopping me from doing everything I can right now to really move forward those things that will help economic development and infrastructure right now. And that meant, obviously, advocating for the ARP funding, making sure that money's getting to local governments, Uh, making sure that we're having those certificate of participation sales and consolidating uh, the debt offerings of local governments so that they can receive uh, efforts. And then obviously really doing everything I can to promote the public works board and the assistance account that they operate in. And I'm happy to see 100, like I said, I think it was about $120 million uh, actually go to them this year, not be rated uh, by the legislature, which is going to make a big difference, especially in in rural Washington in having a lot of uh, infrastructure go into place, um, which includes not just kind of water, sewer, those kind of foundational things, um, but also, um, uh, you know, broadband and other infrastructure like that. Uh, Laura Van Tosh asks, is there any way of extending the statewide rent moratorium uh, when we are now going to build a $621 million state psychiatric hospital? Um, you know, there, 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 there's a lot going on with that right now. Obviously, there's a lot of news coverage and a lot of issues around the, the moratorium and the impacts. And, and, you know, I know the city of Seattle just passed some new le- uh, legislation at the municipal level around those issues. Um, obviously, it's nothing that our office specifically, um, you know, deals with. But what I can say on issues that, that I think are important for our economic vitality is it's important that people stay housed. I mean, one of the things that 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 I, I am doing, even though um, our office is not involved in that effort, is the work I do with uh, as a member of the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, and making sure that we're doing everything we can to provide uh, the range of, uh, of uh, housing affordability for for those who need to be be accessing it. So uh, I don't want to miss the, the what is really the critical question on the issues of the moratorium, which obviously the governor is making a decision on very shortly. Um, but uh, it, it's obviously critical to make sure that in everything we're doing, we're keeping people housed because that's the next step to make sure um, that we, we don't have the economic, uh, continued economic challenges. Because even though we're seeing an economic recovery, it is very important for me that everyone is seeing an economic recovery. And we don't just have certain people who, who are moving forward uh, in the state and, and obviously other, other folks who are not. Um, and so, uh, you know, that it's at the forefront of my mind in, in so many ways because you know, keeping people housed uh, is is a very effective way to make sure that we, we minimize the cost on our, our the social service needs that already 
uh, ready strained for the, the existing needs that are already exist. I'm seeing a lot, a lot of heads nodding as you're saying what you're saying there. Uh, so here's a second question from Julian Wheeler. Um, he is PCO and member of the Dems Veterans Caucus. In addition to the ESG lens, how is your office enhancing financial education efforts to end smarten specifically marginalized groups, i.e. K through 12 students, minorities, military veterans, WMBE, people with disabilities, uh, justice-involved people, immigrants at all, to bolster their representation in the free market? Oh, it's, it's a great question. And actually, it's, it's a timely question because in about a week or two, we're going to be posting uh, a position for a financial education coordinator position in our office that actually has been vacant uh, for, for at least a year at this point in the treasurer's office. And, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a good question because it's a critical issue. I mean, so many issues around financial education are really foundational, especially early on, to make sure that, that folks don't fall, fall victim to predatory lending, uh, you know, the range of other issues that can pop up um, to make sure that, that, that folks are, are, are in a stable position. Because I really view a lot of the, the issues of economic justice as being access to capital. And too many folks um, have been put in a situation where they're being denied access to capital um, you know, because of uh, prior history on certain issues that, that you know, they, they did not have the opportunity to, to have financial education opportunities. And I, I really want to make sure that the financial education uh, coordinator that comes in the office and the work that, that, that the coordinator will be doing will really be finding people where they're at in school um, and, and really making sure it, um, we're providing education in a way um, and uh, education modules in a way around the state uh, that provide people um, the, the opportunity to, to learn about the importance of, of, of smart uh, financing very early on in life and that it's a critical component to their education uh, while in school. I think we're just about ready to wrap up here. Uh, I will just uh, first and foremost say thank you uh, so much for your your time, your candor, your extraordinary work. Um, it's going to be uh, an interesting, I think to say the least, uh, a number of months ahead of us, uh, not least of which what is happening on the voting rights front, but also in terms of what may be happening on the infrastructure front. Uh, I wonder if, if you want to just take a couple minutes and, uh, and just have a, a couple last words before we go. Well, look, my last couple of words I have is just to thank all of you. I mean, so many people are on this call are friends and, and, you know, you mentioned at the out, at the start of our, uh, sort of our chat, uh, I think it was Kat as part of her introduction mentioned that I was the only uh, democratic uh, candidate for state executive office in the country who beat an incumbent. Um, that, that, you know, there were hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of, of candidates uh, for, for office. I, I mean, we're talking th- actually thousands of candidates in that situation. Um, and I did that because of the help of so many of you. Um, and so I just want to take this opportunity to really thank all of you for your support. It is not easy to beat an incumbent. I can tell you that firsthand, actually not twice. When I was first elected to the legislature, I beat an 18 year uh, Republican uh, political incumbent uh, to, to win that race and have a one seat majority in, in the house as a result of that back in 2016. Um, but what I know is we do it through grassroots support. Um, and starting campaigns early and really just really being focused and doing what we need to do and being consistent with our messaging. And uh, you all made that possible. So, uh, so so many people on this call made this possible. And I just want to thank all of you so much for the opportunity to see all of you again. I haven't seen some of you for, for a while. I can't wait to see you in person. Uh, get, get vaccinated if you're not already. I'm sure most of you are. If you're able to get vaccinated, get vaccinated because that is good for the economy. 
it is good to open up and it's good for me to be able to see you in person, which would make me happy. So, uh, so keep doing all the good work that you're doing. It's just so good to see all so many friends again. Get vaccinated and make the treasurer happy. Okay. That's, that's where we're <laughs> going to leave things tonight. Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti, it is always such a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to see you. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks again to Treasurer Mike Pelciotti. Thanks also to Julian Giavsky, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to get in touch, our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.